like to speak about this evening is the journey of the warrior. In this path, in the spiritual journey, we speak about developing and nurturing the path of the heart. Acceptance and generosity, sensitivity and compassion, receptivity and open-heartedness. These are all vital pillars of wisdom. They show us how to listen to the world and how to listen to ourselves. These are the qualities that teach us about interconnectedness. They are immensely powerful qualities, powerful enough to dissolve the divisions and barriers and separations that can so much shadow our lives and shadow our world. And I do believe that we learn that these qualities are not necessarily consequences or results of wisdom, but that these qualities of the heart are very much forerunners to a life of understanding and freedom. A mystic once said, of what benefit is the open eye if the heart is blind? Through fostering acceptance and forgiveness and compassion in our own hearts and journeys, we learn the ways to cease battling and struggling and warring with ourselves, with the moment that we're in. I think we begin to understand the futility of denial and negation, of overcoming and of suppression. We understand that these are pathways that simply breed more war and more struggle and more resistance. And through fostering sensitivity and compassion, we do learn deeply the lessons of peacemaking and the lessons of harmony. We cultivate a willingness to learn from all things, rather than following a pathway of avoidance or distance. I think there is no doubt that having grown up in and survived a world and a life which so much values competitiveness, proving ourselves, achievement, and striving, that we so gladly welcome that there may well be the possibility of a different way of being, of a different way of living our lives, and of a different way of traveling this path. We grow up in a culture which fosters discontent, where we are encouraged again and again to strive for something other, we learn, too, I think in our culture many times, that there is a great virtue in avoidance, a virtue in avoiding the unpleasant, avoiding the challenging in our lives, avoiding that which is difficult. Growing up on a diet of avoidance, we do find ourselves many times extraordinarily shattered when life's realities no longer cease to avoid us. When we are confronted with the actualities of loss, of death, of separation, 
We are very ill-equipped to deal with these realities as long as we are traveling the path of the avoidance of the difficult. It is also a very busy life, a life of avoidance. It makes us very busy because in order to avoid the unpleasant, the way that we do that is by pursuing the pleasant. Now, life, unfortunately, hasn't heard of or isn't interested in our particular preferences. So we become very busy because it seems that there is so much that we need to avoid and so much that can be pursued. Our culture, unfortunately, has a sudden addiction to a philosophy of discontent. Be not satisfied is one of the guiding rules of our culture. Get more, gain more, become more, be more, improve yourself, perfect yourself, be better than you are. Be a winner and a victor. Be a conqueror and a master. It is no surprise, I feel, that we feel so delighted to understand that there is a great strength and a great wisdom in learning how to be, in simplicity, in learning how to grow open to what is, rather than endlessly struggling to become something other, or to manipulate our worlds in a way in which we are not exposed to the difficult. Feel that intuitively we find ourselves responding to a path which emphasizes gentleness, which emphasizes learning how to be at peace with all things, learning how to be at peace with ourselves. I feel we often feel delighted to discover a path which honors the strengths of compassion, of openness, of sensitivity. And for many women in this path, there is a sense of coming home. There is a sense that many of the values which, which are the foundations of this path are really an affirmation of an ethos or a relationship which they have always honored in their lives. And I feel intuitively we sense that there is something extraordinarily authentic and genuine and liberating in learning how to connect with ourselves, connect with our world, with compassion and with openness. We cannot help but be aware of the consequences of a life and of an ethos which is dedicated to competitiveness, to overcoming, to striving, and to perfection. We cannot help but be aware of the consequences of lives that are dedicated to being winners and victors, and the way in which that belief system can so deeply wound and scar our planet, our communities, and our relationships. The pursuit of domination the pursuit of control, the pursuit is the pursuit of denial and negation. To pursue control and domination is essentially to breed ever more divisions and separations, and they in themselves breed endless 
hierarchies and prejudices because these are the children of creating division. For every winner, there is a loser. For every victor, there is a casualty. For everyone who strives and achieves, there may be another who is deprived and at loss. The path of victor, victory, the path of conquering, the path of winning, is perhaps what we associate with being the path of the traditional, our traditional sense of the warrior, who is intent on goals, on mastery, on subjugation, on domination. And I think we have learned of the effects and the consequences of following the path of the traditional warrior. We see the wounds and the scars. We see the struggle and the alienation and the conflict that so follows in the footsteps of any desire to overcome or to dominate. Intrinsically, I think basically, essentially, we feel happy to question and to forsake the role and the path of the traditional warrior, and perhaps to renew our connection with and to reclaim a path and a way of being which seeks to nurture, to heal, and to liberate through the power of compassion and sensitivity and generosity. I feel as a culture, we are learning the lessons about the effects of domination, of subjugation. And there is something of a backlash against the traditional warrior's path. And one of the consequences of seeing the suffering that results from that path and domination is that there is a certain trend in many spiritual paths in many spiritual traditions. There is a trend in many many therapeutic traditions, and there is also a trend in many social values in which there is a really rather strong encouragement given to people to learn how to reclaim the feminine within themselves, to find the feminine, to connect with the feminine, to connect with the woman within themselves. Now, initially, when I have become aware of, of these you know, encouragements and exhortations coming from many different areas, I must admit that initially I, I feel quite happy. This is, sounds like good news. I mean, we all know that there is a bottomless need in our world and in our lives for a greater gentleness, a greater forgiveness and compassion and healing. And yet, as I reflect upon many of these encouragements and exhortations to reclaim the feminine, I must admit I find myself somewhat questioning them and even feeling somewhat suspicious, particularly when, say, one example of this encouragement was when I heard... um, the situation of a woman who was very much questioning the authoritarian structure of a tradition that she was in and very much challenging it. And she was 
encouraged to reclaim the feminine within herself. I do wonder in this definition of the feminine or these encouragements, I do wonder whether there is yet another kind of stereotype being suggested. I do wonder whether in that encouragement to connect more deeply with the feminine, what kind of static image is actually associated with those words? And whether those words of the feminine are actually evoking a description and a definition of the feminine as being exclusively receptive, nurturing, gentle, sensitive, loving, and whether in that there isn't perhaps a suggestion that it is wise to surrender assertiveness, courage, fearlessness, and steadfastness. Whether there is an encouragement to surrender around capacities for transformation. And I personally cannot help but notice that in cultures where the feminine is equated with saintliness, and where women are encouraged to pursue that saintliness, that that strength of that encouragement tends to be equally the strength to which their well-being actually suffers. <coughs> In a journey of inquiry and a journey of exploration, we are asked to reflect upon what it is that we most value in our lives. In what ways are we empowered to contribute to a world which is free of division and hatred and suffering? I think as women, we are asked to question what it is that we value within ourselves, what it is that will enable us to live a life of dignity, of wisdom, and of freedom. In this quest for freedom, we do need to learn the lessons of acceptance and compassion and forgiveness. We need to learn the lessons of open-heartedness. We equally need to know deeply and well how to foster our own capacities for vision and courage, how to foster our capacities for determination and steadfastness, how to foster our capacities for commitment. We need to learn how to weave together the qualities of strength and gentleness, of power and receptivity, how to weave together sensitivity and single-pointedness. There is a question of a tapestry being woven in this path. There is something I would like to read to you from Lao Tzu. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior, courteous as a guest, and fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, unclear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting, 
She is present and can welcome all things. In weaving together the qualities that allow us to travel this path well, we need perhaps to look at how much we are connected with our own capacities for fearlessness and steadfastness, for vision and for perseverance. If you think of the stories of so many great mystics and the ways in which they awaken, think of the story of Siddhartha the Buddha. You can hardly imagine the Buddha kind of sinking gracefully and reclining under the Bodhi tree and thinking, well, wouldn't it be good luck if I got enlightened tonight? You know? <laughs> there was something else going on here. This story of perseverance, the story of steadfastness, steadfastness and commitment, is the story that is reflected in the lives of countless women, both in ancient and in contemporary times. We see the story, the theme of perseverance, of steadfastness and courage. In the women who go out and plant seeds, in a land which is devastated again and again by hunger, by famine, or by war. We see the, the tradition of the warrior in these women. We see the tradition of the warrior in the women who stand vigils for peace before weapons of destruction. We see the spirit of the warrior present in those women who live in abject poverty, in environments of violence, and yet who endeavor in every way to raise their children with dignity and with integrity. We see the spirit of the warrior in those women who challenge hierarchies and conventions and laws that attempt to limit their freedom. A few weeks ago in England, the first women were ordained as priests in the Church of England. It was a path that has taken many, many years, hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, those women did not arrive at that place by saying, oh, of course, Father, I'd be delighted to embroider another altar cloth. <laughs> you know, they put a little bit more into it than this. There was courage there. There was perseverance. There was commitment. There was dedication. This all is a part of traveling a path of transformation. Now, these women have not forgotten the power of forgiveness, the power of acceptance, and the power of love, but have learned to weave those qualities together with a remarkable courage and determination and vision. We do not need to perform grand deeds in order to travel the path of the warrior and to live with the spirit of the warrior. We simply need to know in our lives that which is unacceptable, the ways in which we may be imprisoned, the ways in which we may accept limitation, the ways in which we may accept suffering, we need to perhaps look at any area of our lives where there is too much compromise and too much pain, because too much pain speaks to us about an absence of freedom. 
We need to learn, I believe, how to call forth the spirit of the warrior within ourselves. Not the, perhaps, not the traditional warrior who is armored with willpower and with the desire for dominance. Not the traditional warrior who seeks for invincibility or control or mastery. But we need to call forth, to learn how to call forth, the spirit of the genuine warrior that is not interested and not concerned with overpowering enemies or adversaries, but the spirit of the genuine warrior who is totally intent upon transformation and upon freedom. The genuine spirit of the warrior is not addicted to power, but is empowered. The spirit of the genuine warrior is not without fear, but is willing to befriend fear. The genuine warrior doesn't think about victories or losers, but is unwilling to accept anything less than truth and freedom. The warrior, the genuine warrior, is not going forth into a battle, but is traveling on a journey, and perhaps the most significant journey in her life. And then there comes a point when we all need to acknowledge <clears throat> the responsibility to ourselves to nurture and to realize our own possibilities for freedom and for understanding. Now we have all, I believe, at different times in our lives, traveled the avenues of endlessly rearranging our worlds and our minds and our bodies in a search for perfection or in a search for happiness. We may well all have traveled at different times in our lives the endless paths of self-negation or attempting to improve ourselves in the search for an ideal resting place. We perhaps all at different times in our lives may have waited in hope and anticipation for the fairy godmother to arrive or for the night to suddenly appear. Perhaps it has only been in the form of endlessly looking for the new guru, the new technique, the new practice, the new path. We may also all have traveled at different times in our lives the path of blame and despair. And I do believe there comes a point for us where we wake up. Where we wake up in our lives and we wake up in ourselves and we are willing to forsake fantasies. This waking up is a time of stillness. It's a time of questioning, a time of looking anew at ourselves and at our lives to really question where is it that happiness and peace actually lie. What is it that enables us to step out of the familiar world of struggle and suffering? What is it that allows us to move from confusion to clarity, 
from anger to compassion. Now, I have no doubt that in many of these transitions, there is certainly a quality of grace involved, a quality of mystery. And yet, it is also true that in making these transitions, there is a quality of learning to cultivate and to nurture our own powers of transformation, our own capacity to understand deeply, to free ourselves of what is not true. There is a time in this path and in our lives when it is appropriate to breathe life into the spirit of the warrior within ourselves. I would like to touch upon some of the factors, some of the dimensions of the warrior's journey. One of those dimensions is the dimension of vision. Now, every spiritual story, every spiritual tradition features the different tales of the warrior. Sometimes the warrior is portrayed in the image of the seeker who sets out or sets forth on what is at times often a lonely journey. In the Buddhist tradition, this stepping forward, this stepping out into the unknown is many times illustrated in going forth into the homeless life. Like in the story of Siddhartha, he left behind that which he knew and entered into the unknown. Often this transition takes place in the face of ridicule and cynicism from others. And often this transition also takes place in the face of self-doubt, in doubt in ourselves. The warrior in this journey that is often illustrated <coughs> is usually portrayed as someone who has to face or does face almost endless trials and challenges in their quest for freedom and truth. But they are inspired, you know? They don't kind of get outside the gate and say, enough, let's go home. You know? They're inspired, and they are inspired by vision. They are inspired by a sense of profound possibility it is vision that sustains the warrior's journey. And vision is necessary in this path. Vision brought us here. Vision is essential to awakening. Vision means that no matter how long a history we have had of conflict in our lives, no matter how much evidence there is from our past that speaks about limitation, no matter how many fears and doubts we carry with us, there is an unshakable sense of vision that the wonders that are spoken of in the spiritual path, in the forms of peace, of joy, of understanding, of freedom, of connectedness, there is the remarkable confidence that these are our possibilities. They are not reserved for special or saintly people. That these are our possibilities, the possibilities of each one of us in this journey. What difference 
would it make in our lives, in our retreat, in a single sitting, to be deeply attuned to this sense of confidence and trust and vision? What difference would it make in every moment? What transformations would be brought by having that confidence in those possibilities, in having a passion for freedom? How many moments would be transformed if we were inspired not so much to travel the territory that we already know, not to dwell on what has already gone by, but if we are inspired to open to the unknown, to aloneness, to stillness? What difference would it make in our moments to trust deeply that in the spaciousness and silence of being still, of being present, if we trusted in that, that through that the wisdom that liberates us will be revealed. Think of so many of the mind states that you've acquainted yourself with here today. Think of so many of the thoughts you've thought today. How many of them were new thoughts? How many of those mind states were new to you? How many times have we visited those places? How well do we know them? How much more do we have to learn from them? At what point do we say dwelling has limitations? <laughs> At what point do we say we have learned what we need to learn? And that there is a time for letting go. And that somehow we can never explore or open to the unknown as long as we are dancing with what we know. Imagine a world for yourself where your passion for freedom and understanding was far greater than your passion for comfort, for security, for pleasure, and for identity. What difference would that make in your retreat, in a single sitting in your life? If your passion for freedom was greater than your passion for identity or for safety. I would invite you, strongly invite you, to take a single day, to take a single hour of simply cultivating a passion for freedom, a passion for understanding. To take a single day, a single hour of cultivating a co of confidence in your own essential freedom, to know that limitation is not your nature. To know that none of the words and none of the judgments that arise can ever be a true description of who you are. Vision carries with it a curious combination of knowing and not knowing. Now, there is a quality of knowing that can be remarkably powerful in this path. Sometimes you probably wonder what it is that brings you back to sit and to walk hour after hour, even though it can be pretty miserable. 
you know, your mind has got all these options, you know, perhaps tickets to the Caribbean, you know, there's other possibilities, and yet we keep turning up to sit and to walk. There is, we know, we know that there is something more real than our superficial judgments of this moment. There is a quality of intuition that carries a remarkable authority that is more powerful than our momentary experiences, our momentary thoughts. That authority is rooted to vision. It is rooted to that sense of possibility. On the eve of his enlightenment, when the Buddha was sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, he was assailed by all the forces of Mara, all of the illusions, all of the temptations, and he was assailed by the voice of doubt. And Mara said to the Buddha, you know, who do you think you are? You know, what are you doing under this tree? Who gives you the authority to be here? Who gives you the authority to be a seeker? And the Buddha simply touched the earth. We carry that authority within us, and we carry that vision within us. And one of our greatest challenges in this path is learning to deeply trust in that authority and that vision. Knowing is powerful also as a factor in letting go. You know, the mind states arise, the thoughts arise. There is a great virtue in being able to know them as they are. To be able to say, I know you dullness, I know you anger, I know you avoidance, I know you restlessness. That that knowing can be a, an expression of wisdom. That we don't need to follow those avenues anymore. Yet not, not knowing, not knowing is equally powerful and equally profound. There is something so powerful about being willing to rest in not knowing, to be able to relinquish our needs for control, our ideas of how things should be, to be able to surrender and open to what is. And this teaching is so much a teaching of learning the wisdom of resting and not knowing. I would suggest, you know, it's a good idea to aim for having completely forgettable sittings and walkings. <laughs> you know, you leave a sitting, you don't need to remember anything about that sitting. You end a walking, you don't need to remember anything about it. The more that you say, you know, this is what my experience is, this is who I am, that is what you are, that is a judgment that is conditioning the next moment to be aware of that. Faith is also an essential part of the warrior's journey. Now, one of the greatest struggles, one of the greatest demons we face in this journey is the demon of doubt. We have so many notions, perhaps, of what meditation should look like, you know, what a good meditator should look like, what a good meditation experience should look like, and everybody seems to have it except us. We have so many notions and ideas of progress about getting somewhere. We have so many evaluations and judgments always on hand to speak to us about failure and inadequacy. 
And sometimes people say to me, you know, well, I'm just not getting anywhere. I'm not making any progress. I don't seem to be going anywhere with my practice. And I must admit, I, in response to that question, I can only ask, where do you think you're going? Where do you think you're going? What is this path about? It's not about going somewhere else. Is peace, can peace ever be separate from this moment? Is there a better moment to let go? You know, is there going to be a better moment to open, a better moment to extend compassion, a better moment to inquire? I think a great part of faith is having the willingness to surrender, to totally let die our ideals and notions of the ideal meditation, the ideal personality that is somehow magically going to visit us after we've got rid of all our obstacles and improved ourselves. <coughs> meditation is not about getting somewhere else. As I mentioned on the first evening on the retreat, the magic and the mystery of being able to see the special in the ordinary and the ordinary in the special. This is what the whole path of mysticism is about. Our teachers and our learning do not lie somewhere else. They don't lie apart from the dullness, from the struggles, from the doubt. Faith is not a surrender of doubt. Doubt is an integral part of faith. It is doubt that brought us here. I mean, you doubted your realities. That is what brought, us, brought you here. You doubted whether it was the whole truth of yourself, you know, to live a life of struggle and confusion and conflict. You doubted it. You doubted your images. You doubted your descriptions of yourselves. It is that doubt that brings us to this path. And out of that doubt comes faith. Doubt can be creative. It can lead us to cast off disguises and assumptions and conclusions, and it can lead us to question what is true. From doubt comes faith. Dear I had a friend, I have a friend, who's an artist in New York, and she'd been painting for many years, and she finally came to a point where she decided she would like to have an exhibition. So she took some of her paintings to a number of dealers in Manhattan. And she took them around, and she got a lot of positive feedback. And a number of dealers said to her, you know, yes, we'd like to mount an exhibition. Where do you live? And she said, I live in Long Island. And they said to her, artists don't live in Long Island. <laughs> Housewives live in Long Island. Artists don't live in Long Island. He said, when you move to Manhattan, then we'll have an exhibition. And in the, in the face of that feedback, she found herself beginning you know, to doubt. Maybe she wasn't a real artist. You know, maybe she, she, you know, she didn't live in a garret. She wasn't starving. You know. Maybe she wasn't doing the real artist stuff. You know. Maybe she needed to you know, go lie in a bed of nails somewhere, and she'd be an, a real artist because she was suffering. You know, she began to question herself and to doubt herself, and yet also began to see in that that the only place that would be authentic for her to come from would be from a place of trusting in herself, of not being deceived in the images, not being deceived in the descriptions. And out of that, out of not being deceived 
by the untrue comes the faith to discover what is true. Another quality of the warrior is the quality of alertness, what we call here mindfulness. It is mindfulness that bonds us with the present moment. Mindfulness is our bridge to the present moment. It is the quality that grounds us. When there is no mindfulness, we so frequently just live in a world endlessly interpreted by our thoughts and by the past. Mindfulness asks us to open our hearts and eyes to what is right here, to what is now. And it is mindfulness that prevents vision from becoming fantasy. It is easy to dream. It is easy to have a life that is filled with fantasies of the next perfect moment, the great romance, the wonderful attainment that always lies just one step away. And I think as women, we are, have often been encouraged in our lives to dream. We have often been encouraged to live in a world of fantasy because dreaming or fantasy is a kind of opiate that quiets discontent. It inhibits questioning. And fantasy is an alternative to embracing reality. We are often tempted into fantasy. And traditionally, I think for in our conditioning, we may find that we've been many times encouraged to distract ourselves. How many times in your life when you've been going through a difficult time or you have a problem, or there's something you've been struggling with, have you been encouraged to take your mind off it? Take your mind off it. Well, the mind is the problem. I have never really understood how you do this. But take your mind off it. But there are a few prescriptions. Take a pill. You know, you've got troubles, take a pill. Go shopping. You know, have a baby. Move house. You know, there are lots of alternatives to embracing reality. And it is no stranger to our conditioning to discover within ourselves and without ourselves this encouragement to dream. And yet those fantasies breed such a vast division between what is and what could be. And every dream, every fantasy of what should be is often, too often, a denial of what is. Our mind and our conditioning is often telling us it's better to be somewhere else than where we are. The mind spends a lot of time trying to convince us that it's better to be somewhere else than where we are. Have you ever noticed when you are truly present, really connected, really awake, when you really listen to the sound of a bird, when you really see a flower unfolding, when you really listen to your own body, when you really feel present within yourself, there is a remarkably deep peace found within being present. I never heard anybody ever once complain about being awake. There is a remarkably powerful peace within it. And yet somehow within us, we've got this little monologue that's going, saying, oh, you know, it's really better somewhere else. You know, it's really better future, past, you know, fantasies, daydreams, distractedness. It's actually better somewhere else. Do we trust our capacity to be present? Do we trust our capacity to be awake? 
Mindfulness is something, actually, it re- does require great determination and courage. It requires discriminating wisdom. Not the courage, you know, of, you know, mindfulness is not the kind of courage, you know, of digging in your heels, you know, and that, uh, you know, dying on your cushion. This is not the kind of determination we're looking for. I mean, I have been on retreats where I have seen people carried out of the meditation room in a full lotus posture, you know, because they're learning how to die on their cushion. And I wonder, you know, what they you know, where is, you know, how much wisdom is there in this? It's very admirable, I'm sure, but how much wisdom is there really in this? But there is a quality of determination and courage that is really needed here. It may be a stranger to us, this quality of determination, or we may have all kinds of nasty associations with, with it. You know, that determination means kind of stubbornness or, or invincibility or, or not listening. But there's another kind of determination, which is about dedication and commitment. You know, and you know, girls are not often really well taught about courage and determination. You know, when we're in the playground in our pigtails, you know, we're told, you know, oh, you're weak. You know, there's this big myth of feminine frailty. You know, you put us in a wind and we're going to fall over. You know, there is a myth of feminine weakness. You know, we're in the playground and we're saying, oh, you know, look for a protector. Some, you know, Billy's bullying you. We'll get Johnny to look after you. You know, there is this enormous myth promoted through our childhood that we don't know how to look after ourselves. We don't know how to seek for our own freedom. We don't know how to cultivate our own capacities for transformation. It is a myth. It is a myth. I think we can well abandon the habit of looking over our shoulders for a savior. There is a place within ourselves of remarkable strength and remarkable courage that enables us to turn towards that which is difficult, to face our fears and our hungers and our demons. The courage to abandon avoidance and numbness and negotiation the courage to be, the courage to be awake, to learn how to sit without guarantees, to learn how to walk with looking for nothing, to learn how to travel this path without seeking in for any signposts of reassurance. Traveling this path is a little bit like building a fire. You know, if you are cold, and you want to build a fire to warm yourself, and you're seeking for the heat and for the, for the light of the fire, when you first start to light that fire, there's a lot of smoke, gets in your eyes, makes you cry, and yet you continue to breathe life, to breathe air into the fire. And through that determination, through that steadfastness, the flames burst forth, and they warm you, they guide you. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with courage. May all beings live with compassion. If we have just two minutes quietly together, 